This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So about five years ago, I came to my house after a long day of work at about 10 p.m., and I walked into my home, at least I thought it was my home, in East Aurora, and I opened the door and I thought, I'm in the wrong house. This house is a mess, and I am neat. I'm immaculately neat and orderly, I'd like to think. There was cushions on the floor, baskets had been overturned, stuff scattered everywhere, all the kitchen cabinets were open and stuff had been thrown out of them. Went into my bedroom, my bed was broken in half. And then I realized, I've been robbed. I called the police, they came, counted up my losses. They took a brand new TV, the box was sitting next to it, they put it in the box, took the whole thing. I had a bottle of wine, they thought about taking that, they moved it, but then they saw the TV and took the TV instead. They broke my bed, made a mess. You know what? None of that made me angry for long. I mean, none of that really, even the fact that people were in my home. I know people say, I felt like so violated. I really didn't. But you know what really made me bad? Makes me mad thinking about it now, so I'm glad I confess my sins, and I'm glad I'll say the Lord's Prayer and, ask, and confess my sins again. But what made me really mad was this little white bin I kept under my bed. And in that little white bin, well, it's actually a pretty good-sized bin, was all the pictures I have of my kids growing up. Pictures of playing soccer, pictures of singing music, pictures of my grandpa with my dad, with me, with my son. Four generations of woodly men. And they opened that up and obviously saw what was in it and threw it out like it was trash. And I thought to myself, what kind of person would do that? Break my bed, throw my couch pillows around. But that's my kids. That makes me mad. That burns me. You know, sometimes anger is just about something petty. Somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you get angry. But sometimes, Anger reveals something much deeper. It reveals what you treasure, what you value, what you love, what you consider worthy, what you are affectionate for, and to whom you owe your ultimate affection. What we see in Jesus in this passage is that kind of anger. Sure, he's angry, but underneath that anger, there is affection. There is treasuring. There is valuing. There is love. So it says in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remembered Jesus, quoting from Psalm 69. They saw that in Jesus, and that zeal was about something. It's about his affections. 
So in this passage, when the church reads this passage, the, the, the church that put this in the Gospel of John wants you not just to know something about Jesus, the church wants you to feel something about Jesus. The church wants you to catch something from Jesus. Not just be taught, but to be caught. The church historian Robert Louis Wilkin, great quote, he said, the Christian faith is an affair of not only learning to think rightly about God, but also of learning to feel rightly about God. To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So this morning as we look at this passage, I want you to join me as we, as we discover this together. I want to join me in seeking the Lord that he would show us his affection, that we would feel his affection, that we would display his affection. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to this passage. It's a great passage. It's a hard passage. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of historical, cultural background. I'll try to give some of that. You can get all of this from a good study Bible, but this is one of those times where it's like, you really need to study the historical context. So verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus was up to Jerusalem. Now, let me just stop and pause there, because that phrase, the Jews, John uses that a lot in his gospel. Over 50 times he uses the phrase, the Jews. And it actually refers to different groups of Jewish people. So in verse 18 it says, so the Jews said to Jesus, and they're, they're arguing with Jesus. Often it's used, the Jews is used as a phrase for a particular subset of the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day who were resistant and hostile to his message. Now why does that matter? Because people have taken and twisted the Gospel of John and used it as an anti-Semitic tract. This has been done in the history of the church in the name of Christianity. And I just want to say, first of all, that you read the Gospel of John, Jesus has a deep affection for the Jewish, Jewish people. Here he is at a Jewish Passover celebration. He will go to three Jewish Passover Passover celebrations. He's always there. He has a profound affection for the Jewish people. So they're at the Passover, and you got to understand, so the Passover, Jerusalem becomes a mob at this time. Think of uh, pre-COVID days, O'Hare, well, maybe it was this way, this Thanksgiving even. Think of O'Hare Airport with people going and coming, and it's crowded, and there's mobs of people. And they're all making noise, and they're there. And in verse 14, it says, in the temple. Now, let me just pause there, because here's something else we need to understand. It's the temple. What is the temple, and what does that represent? Well, the temple is one of those epic, big Bible words that could be used to, in a way, tie the whole Bible together. And one way to talk about the Bible is the story of the temple. So... The temple is a place of intimacy. It's a place of God and human beings walking together, God pouring out his love and people worshiping back in intimacy. So the Garden of Eden in the first chapters of the Bible is really a proto-temple. And then after Adam and Eve sinned, God instructed the Jewish people to build another temple, 
a place where they could come close. And now there's this deep problem of sin, so the temple was also the place where sin could be dealt with, where sacrifices could be made. And we have a hard time with sacrifices. For us, they're just, they just seem really bloody. Of course, many of us have never seen an animal killed. We don't know how we get our chicken or our hamburger. But people, most people in the developing world don't really have much of a problem with this because they see it, they're close to it. But the sacrificial system was a very powerful way for us to know and to feel, to feel the costliness of sin, how out of whack it is, how wrong it is, how evil it is, but also that God has provided a way for us to get back to him and to be forgiven and to be cleansed. And all of that was wrapped up in the temple. And the temple was also the place where, the center of the place where God would teach his people and where his people would be taught and where his people from that center would be a light to all the nations, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that's really important, to, so hold on to that. So in verse 14, Jesus is in the temple, but he's actually in the outer ring of the temple. So there's four parts to the temple. And he's in the outer section of it called the court of the Gentiles. And that was the only place where the Gentiles, those who were not raised in Jewish homes, those who were outsiders, those, those people could receive instruction. Those people could be drawn near to the living God of mercy and beauty and truth. And what is Jesus when he comes? What does he find in that court of the Gentiles? Well, there's oxen. There's big farm animals, there's medium-sized farm animals, there's pigeon everywhere, there's vendors everywhere hawking their, their wares and changing money. I mean, it would be like taking that great section out there, sometimes called the narthex, and turning it into a really noisy, unorganized farmer's market on Sunday morning. So we'd have people at booths, maybe they'd be selling bulletins. Hey, get your bulletin, 10 bucks. Rent a Bible, $5. Get your Father Brett t-shirts, two for 25 today. People selling stuff, people yelling stuff, people haggling. And Jesus walks into this, and everybody's okay with it. And then all of a sudden, I imagine the disciples going, hey, where'd Jesus go? He was just here a minute ago. Where is he? And they're looking around for him. They think maybe he got lost in the crowd. Then all of a sudden, they see him coming, and he's walking, and he's got a blaze of fire in his eyes. He's got a homemade whip in his hands, and he is coming straight for the vending tables. And he comes, and, and look at the verbs in this, this passage, because they're, they're really important. So he, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is noisy. This is messy. And he drives out the animals, it tells us in the other Gospels. He drives them out. Do you know how hard it is to drive farm animals? It's not easy. I called my good friends, Kay and Willis Finnefrock from Barnum, Minnesota this week, from my first church, who were real farmers. And I said, hey, I'm preaching on this passage. What, can you tell me anything about like sheep and oxen and how hard it is to move them? And Kay says, oh, sheep are the most stubborn things. They would rather lie down and die than go where you want them to go. And then Willis says, oh, man, I got this story of my son John who was in the farm next door, and he had 100 sheep in a barn, and the barn started on fire. And John kept getting the sheep out, 
And then the sheep would run right back into the barn, right into the fire, and die. My point is that you don't successfully move things when you're just raving mad. This is determined, purposeful, intentional anger. It's not just about the anger. It's like a welding torch. Jesus' anger here is like a welding torch. It's just the tip. It's hot. It's focused. It's purposeful. And I said, underneath that, there is affection. And when you use the word, see, the difference between affection and just a feeling is you can just feel something, but an affection is about something. It's about something. It's, it has an object. And so to what or to whom does Jesus have affection in this passage? Well, there's actually a couple things or a number of things. I, I already said the Jewish people, but also perhaps most importantly, he has affection for his heavenly father. So there's a, ver there's a vertical dimension to this. So verses 16 and 17. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now my father's house, he's talking about the temple. What a strange way to talk. My father's house, not our father's house, not our, like all of us, the Jewish people, my father's house. Nobody talked that way in Jesus' day. Nobody called it my father's house. What's he talking about? He's, well, in the Gospel of John, we, we learn that, that Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, that this is the triune God operating together. So in my father's house, Jesus is declaring, I, my father has a special, unique affection for me. I have a unique affection for my father. From all eternity to eternity, God the Father has been pouring out love and honor on his son. And from all eternity, God the Son has been pouring out love and honor on his father. That exists in the life of the triune God. What a thought. We think of honor as a very, kind of a very old-fashioned kind of thing. Like if, you know, we think of somebody like maybe from the 1800s. Sir, you have dishonored my wife. He pulls off his glove, slaps him in the face. I challenge you to a duel. It's like petty. It's like insignificant. But honor is really about what we value, what we treasure the most. And in the Bible, God is not just generic God. God is a life of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is alive with that love. And so Jesus pours out his honor on his Father, and he sees his Father's name dishonored. Think of when, if somebody dishonored somebody you love, or they think of somebody you love, and people slight that person, they, they ignore that person, or maybe they mock that person, maybe they make fun of that person, or they belittle that person. What do you feel? You feel angry because your beloved one has been mistreated. That's what Jesus is feeling towards his heavenly father. It's just, it's, it's natural. So it's, but it's about the treasuring. It's about the valuing. It's about the honoring. 
Jesus honors his heavenly father. He wants us to step into that honoring as well. What else does he honor? Well, he honors the Gentiles. Here they are. They're in this space, which is supposed to be reserved for them to meet the living God. And and, and what does Jesus find? Well, it is true that pilgrims had to come from a long way. And they had to bring these, and they had to, they couldn't always bring their sacrificial animals there. So it was actually a service. They, They needed these animals, and they needed money changers to help this happen. So there might have been some extortion, but that's, I don't think that's really the point. The point is, as our realtor friends would say, location, location, location. It's where this is taking place. Some scholars think it used to take place outside, and then it gradually moved into the court of the Gentiles. And so here's this place where the Gentiles, to meet the living God, Jesus would say just later in the next chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not just the rich, not just those who are privileged, not just those, those who have special opportunities. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That has always been God's heart. That wasn't a new thing with Jesus. That was always the heart of God from the very beginning. And they, the Jewish people, his own people, have turned it into a strip mall and a stockyard and it's noisy, and it's crowded, and it's no place to meet the living God, and everybody is okay with it. I love the little phrase in verse 14. This is a little detail. Actually, yeah, verse 14, and the money changers were sitting there. They're just sitting there. They're fine with this. They got their little money tables. They got their little change, making their little deals and making their little haggling. And and everybody's okay with it. But Jesus is not. Why? Because he has affection for the Gentiles to meet the living God. There's a third thing he has affection for in this passage. And that's where I think this passage just sort of, there's like a hand that comes out of the Bible as I was reading this. Like, right in my heart, touches me right in this heart. He has affection for you. He has affection for me. He has affection for you. Look at verse 18, because this is where this passage takes a really kind of strange turn. So the Jews, okay, so that's the Jews being used as a certain select group of Jewish leaders. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Who are you? What right do you have to come in here and do this? Whose authority? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they're thinking about the temple that took 46 years to build. Are you nuts? It took 46 years and a lot of money and a lot of political support from Herod to get this built. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. What a strange thing. What's going on here? Jesus is saying the physical temples, the buildings, were all really good. As a matter of fact, I'm here for the Passover. But those buildings were actually pointing to something else, something more ultimate 
and that is my body, Jesus says. And he says, destroy this body, and in three days, I will raise it up. It's what some people call a prophetic irony. The irony of the prophets, it's ironic because they will destroy his body. And Jesus is saying pretty much, go ahead, destroy my body, literally. And they literally do that. So his body is destroyed on the cross, defaced, disfigured, degraded, thrown out with what people considered human trash. The poorest of the poor, the slaves, the criminals, without any legal rights, he will join them. He will become one of them. The Apostle Paul will later say that God was in Christ. God the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He who knew no sin would become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then Jesus says, in three days, I will raise it up, my body. I will rise. The resurrection, despising the shame, defeating death, disabling despair. Why? As our creed for us and for our salvation, for you and for your salvation. How amazing is that? His affection for you. The thing that's most important is not the three points I just gave, but the being caught by Jesus's affection. Not just to know things about Jesus, but to feel things about Jesus. Affections. Some of us are missing this. I was reading this week a novel by Marilyn Robinson called Home. And in this novel, Jack is the 40-ish something son of Reverend Boughton. And he's been away from home for 20 years. He's the, he's the prodigal son. It's the prodigal son story, really. And he comes home after 20 years of being completely absent. And he's trying to mend relationships with his father. And his sister, Glory, is also living in the house at the same time. And at one point in the novel, Jack explains to Glory what he, where he's at in his Christian faith and why it's hard for him to believe. And Jack says, well, I'm willing to confess a certain spiritual hunger. I think that's usually the first step, so that's out of the way. And Glory says, and then? Then Jack says, then I think it is usual to ponder the great truths of the Christian faith. And he lists some of the great truths, the fatherhood of God, creation, salvation. And then he pauses and he says, but it is possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. That's where the problem lies, in my case. Jack has been taught, but he has not been caught. 
He sees the great truths, but he has not been captivated by the affections of Jesus. He's not living into the affections of Jesus. He's heard the stories. He knows the right information. It's like there's a fire burning over there, a fire of Jesus' affections. And he's got his little candle, and he's never gone over and just actually let the candle of his heart be lit on fire with the fire of Jesus' affections. So his heart is cold. So let me ask you, what about you? Have you grown up in the church? You're in res youth, go to Wheaton College, you go to another college, you've been going to a Bible church, you've been coming to res for a long time, and maybe you know many things about Jesus, but your heart has grown, gone cold. The fire has gone out, or maybe it was just never there. Maybe you've never, you know the great truths, but you've never felt them as an effective sense. Remember somebody came to me 15 years ago and said, Matt, you have lost your heart. And I could not argue because this person was right. I had lost my heart. The fire had gone out. I still have my days. I'm sure you do too. What do we do? Well, first of all, we just say, that's a problem. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's not the way it has to be. And so we actually bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, look, I got this problem. I have no affection. It's dwindled. It's flickered. It's failed. And then we say, but Lord, I want to stand by you. I want you to light the fire again. Look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I love the way John uses the word believed. It's really the word trust, and it really means to trust into someone. So it's not to just stand out and observe. It's to Take a step of trusting into with your everything that you know that you have, you take, you trust into. And I love that about Jesus, that we can trust into him when you're dry, when you're numb, when you're distracted, when you feel dead, when you're depressed, when you're outraged, when you've lost your way. It doesn't matter. You can trust into him. You can say, Lord, the flame of my affection has grown dim, or maybe it's gone out, but I have an advocate. You forgive me and light the fire in my heart again. May that be our prayer as we journey to Holy Week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast.
To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.